Charles Elliott, one time professor of Harvard University, notice what I said there, Harvard University, was trying to decide how best to dedicate a new building that was going to be used for their philosophy department. Back up, Harvard Philosophy Department. He was looking for a suitable inscription to put over the entrance of this building. You know, when they dedicate buildings, they usually have some kind of inscription they put over the the entrance to that building. And he was trying to decide what he wanted to put over this to to dedicate this philosophy building. Another professor suggested a quote from a a 5th century Greek philosopher named Protagoras. Aren't you glad we don't name our kids Protagoras? The quote was this. Man is the measure of all things. Actually, the full quote is this. Man is the measure of all things, of the things that are, how they are, and of the things that are not. Let me read that one more time. Think about this. Man is the measure of all things, of the things that are, how they are, and of the things that are not. What are your thoughts concerning that? There's a word where I come from that we would say about something like that. Hogwash. Yeah. Elliot, however, decided upon another quote. At the unveiling, the crowd that had gathered was shocked when they pulled down whatever was covering up and they read the words of a Jewish shepherd boy named David. What is man that you are mindful of him? You can go online, Google uh, Harvard Philosophy Department, and you'll see a picture of this building. And sure enough, above it is this quote from David. What is man that you're mindful of him? Harvard University Philosophy Department, capital L, liberal, anti-God. I would love to go to Harvard just for that one reason, to be able to say, I have seen that. Aren't you glad that Harvard students see that at each time they walk into the building of human philosophy? What is man that you are mindful of him? How, how are we to study the doctrine of man? How are we to understand man? How are we to understand who we are and what we are? How, how are we to know that? Well, there's, there's some different views concerning that. Darwin, which we're all familiar with Darwin in the theory of evolution. Here's what Darwin has to say. He has a lot to say, but here's part of what he says. He says, man is nothing more than an animal. We're here to enjoy ourselves, to procreate and then die and get out of the way for the next generation. This view has greatly affected today's worldview in many issues, would you think? If we're just animals, then we're going to behave like what? Animals. Contrast that thought with this, John Calvin. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. He goes on to say, Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon the face of God and then descends from contemplating Him to scrutinizing Himself. If we're going to know who we are, if we're going to have to know God, we can't know ourselves and who we really are until we look to God. We we know ourselves in relation to how we know God. If we can't know ourselves, we cannot know ourselves if we don't know God. 
If we want to know man, if we want to know who we are, this is what we read. Here in Psalm 8, looking at these verses, some 3,000 years ago, when David, at that time a shepherd boy, yet to be king, was probably uh, laying in a field one night... David has a kind of a tendency to do this, does he not? You read the Psalms, David's looking at creation, and he's contemplating his God. He's lying in a field one night, looking up at the night sky, and what he sees fills him with awe and wonder concerning God's amazing creation. And as he looks at God's creation, how amazing it is, he thinks to himself, Who am I? What am I that you, God, would even listen to me? He's looking at this, and he's going... Who am I that God would even contemplate or think about me or consider me? David brings us a question in the context here of the majesty of God. What what is man in relation to you, God, and how glorious and how majestic you are? What is man that you're even mindful of him? Psalm 8 explores this theme, the theme of God's majesty and splendor and our puny insignificance by way of comparison to that. And yet at the same time, God has created us in His image and graciously crowned us with glory and majesty. He's done that for us. He's assigned us the role of ruling over His creation. And all of these thoughts should lead us, as this psalm begins and as it ends, to declare and worship, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. If you're looking at your handout, here's the main idea that we we get from Psalm 8. So rather long this week. Worship the Lord because He is majestic. Excuse me, His name is majestic in all the earth. And because He has graciously crowned us with glory and majesty. Verse 1, your outline, verses 1 and 2. The majesty of God displayed. David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. Notice the first word there. It's translated in the Hebrew as the word Lord. Notice it's what? In most of our Bibles, most of your translations, it should be what? All capital letters. It indicates us the Hebrew word Yahweh. This is God's personal covenant name. If you were to read through your Bible, according to one particular commentator I was reading, some 5,000 plus times you would see this name show up in the Old Testament. It comes, actually the noun comes from a Hebrew verb which means to be. If you were to go to Exodus chapter 3, God first revealed this name to Moses at the burning bush when God says, I am who I am. That's the first reference we have there of this name. It it points to God's eternal self-existence. He is the only uncreated being in the universe. You ever had a small child ask you, where did God come from? God made everything. Here's how it starts out. God made everything. And the little child goes, who made God? And you're sitting there like, No one made God. God's always been there. And you're going, well, a child won't accept that. Well, we can't know everything about God. God has always been there. God says He has always been there. David says, O Lord. Notice the second Lord, lowercase, or capital L, everything else is lowercase. Is the Hebrew name Adonai. It means our sovereign, our personal Lord and Master. The one who rules over the believer's everyday life. Did you catch what David was saying? Lord, the eternal, always been there God, then He calls Him 
our Lord, personal, the one who rules over my everyday life, who guides my life. We can paraphrase David's address this way. Our eternal God, excuse me, O eternal covenant God, our personal ruler, our personal master. You may be thinking, what's the big deal about that? David's looking at creation. He's going, who, who is God to even be mindful of us? But yet at the same time, he turns it around and says, this God is... My God. Although God is eternal and totally separated from His creation, He has graciously, listen to me, God has graciously condescended to enter into a covenant relationship as the sovereign Lord. Notice how I said God has condescended. Jesus came and dwelt among us. God came down. He condescended. David says, Oh Lord, oh God, majestic in all the earth. Who are you to even think about man? David is saying, this great God is... What is he saying about this God? He's what? He's my God. This week I was sitting out, as I normally do in the morning, drinking my coffee, just kind of watching it turn, kind of breaking daylight, and I was reading these passages, mulling them over my mind, and I'm thinking, I'm looking, and I'm going, this is God's creation. The God who created all this is majestic, but guess what? He's... He's my God. I don't know about you, but that kind of overwhelms me to know that the Creator, the God of this universe, He's my God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 1, David says, How majestic is your name in all the earth. The word majestic has the idea of taking one's breath away. You ever had something do that? Just You, you don't really lose your breath. That's just an expression. It, just, it catches us and we're just in awe of it. David says that God's name is majestic. God takes His breath away. God's name is excellent. It's perfect in all the earth. His name refers to the perfection of His attributes and the mightiness of His actions. In other words, God's name refers to who He is and what He's done as He has revealed to us in His Word. David says there, majestic is your name. What's the word? In what part of the earth? All the earth. Not just in North Carolina. In the United States, but in all the earth. All. The idea is that His glory glory is accessible to everyone. It's not hidden from anybody. There's no one on the face of the earth that can't see how majestic God is. How do we know that? Uh, On your handout, I should have put a reference there. And if I didn't, I apologize. But you should have Romans chapter 1 verse 20. If you didn't, you just write that in. Here's what Paul says in chapter 1 of Romans in verse 20. He says, for since the creation of the world, what is he saying? In the beginning, God what, church? He created. Paul says, from since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. So has there ever been a time when God has not been visible from the beginning of creation that people could not look and say, there is a God? Never. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. What did Paul say? Through what has been made, creation, man can look and he can go, there is a God. And these words jump off the page at me. And because of that, every human being who's ever born, whoever will be born, is without what? Excuse. You have no excuses. 
before God. Now creation, just observing creation doesn't bring salvation. But it's pretty clear from the Word of God that we can look, as David did, and we can say, there is a God. There is a God there. Notice what David says. You have set your glory above the heavens. God's glory is set above the heavens. All of creation, here's what that means. All of creation cannot contain the greatness and the majesty of God. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. David says, God's glory is above the heavens. As glorious as God's creation is, David's looking at it, and he's, he's contemplating the majesty of God through creation. And he says, as glorious as creation is, God's glory is actually greater than His creation. His glory, that's what he means when he says His glory is above the heavens. Nothing can contain God. God created all we see, but that is glorious, but yet God in Himself is even more glorious than what He has made. He is beyond what He has made. He is that glorious of a God. Keep that in mind as we, as we progress through this. And to think that our majestic, our glorious God humbled Himself. Jesus humbled Himself and He became a man and He humbled Himself to death, even death on the cross. He humbled Himself to save sinners. This glorious, majestic God who is far beyond us condescends and becomes a man and dies that He could save us. I think I've made this statement before. Jesus, God, becoming a man would be like you and I becoming a flea if you want to make a comparison. David's words, how majestic is your name in all the earth, are an expression of his love for God. They're an expression of worship toward this great and glorious God. So how do we make application of this? Here, here's how I, one way I think we can do that. We, Red Bud Baptist Church, we've gathered here today to do what, church? Help me out. What have we gathered here to do today? To worship. We're here to worship. As we gather, we are to contemplate who our God is and what He has done for us. When you sit here in the pews on Sunday mornings, you, you can do like David. This majestic, glorious God who is far above this world He's created and above us, condescended, became one of us and died for us that He could save us and bring us to Himself. As we do so, we should respond with individual personal praise. Our Lord... Excuse me, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic. If put it in English terms today, how awesome you are. How glorious is your name in all the earth. Is that what you've come to do today? Is that why you're here? I'm not talking about sitting here and repeating those words. It's to be an attitude of the heart. When we come, that should be the attitude of our heart. It should be the attitude all week long, but we're gathering here today. God says, don't forsake this time. Get here, gather together, and together worship me. You know, I tell you this all the time. I'm encouraged every week when I come because I'm just like you. I've fought the devil all week long. And I get here and I look and think, they have too. And they're staying faithful. We're here together to worship God because we're all just a bunch of sinners who need Him. And we encourage one another when we do that. That's what we're here for, to worship a God who is so glorious, who would come up, become a man and condescend Himself and die for us to save us from our sins. Verse 2. You, most of us have heard this psalm read, and we know the words of this verse. 
Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. The glory of God, it says here, is declared by the weakest of human beings. Out of the mouth of babies and infants. The greatness of creation proclaims your majesty, David says, and so do the cries of infants and the chatter of small children. You ever thought of that? The next time you hear a baby cry, before you say, I wish that kid would quit crying, think. Proclaiming the the glory and the majesty of God, even the baby crying. It's the weak who silence the wicked, David says, the tiny who shut the mouths of God's enemies. But this verse has more meaning to it than just that. He says, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. God gave what was strong to defeat his foes and steal his enemies and the avenger. And in doing so, God defeated our enemy. In other words, our enemy was defeated by an infant in what? A manger. A baby who was the God-man Jesus who would hang on the cross... And kill our greatest enemies. Sin, death, hell, and the grave. Out of the cries of that babe becomes salvation. Out of the mouth of babes and infants comes praise to our glorious God. But this verse has even more profound meaning than those things. Here's why this verse... Here's here's how we're to look at this verse. Remember, we've talked about this in the past. How we can read the Scriptures and all through the Scriptures. Jesus said everything written in the Scriptures is about who? It's about Him. Remember, you go to Luke chapter 24. He says, He's talking to those guys on the road to Emmaus. He's saying, look, go back. let's go back and read the Scriptures. Let's read these things and I'll show you where I'm at. You're saying, but I don't see Jesus here in Psalm chapter 8. You don't see His name, but Jesus in Matthew chapter 21, verses 15 through 16, He applies this verse to the situation concerning Himself. Jesus is making His way into Jerusalem in Matthew 21. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And listen to what it says. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Children are what? Crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Those words were the, meant this this is the Messiah. This is the cry. This is the one who has came to save us. Who are crying out in the temple that this is the Savior? Children. Out of the mouths of babes and infants. God would defeat His foes and steal His enemies in the avenger. And it goes on to say, they said to Him... Now, when they said this, the people got what? They got angry, right? They were indignant. And they said to Him, Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, I love this part here. Remember, he's talking to religious people, okay? Jesus said, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have prepared praise? What was Jesus saying? Have you never read? In other words, he was saying, you've never, you have, apparently you haven't read the Old Testament Scriptures because what's happening here today is, was prophesied in Psalm chapter 8. That's what he's saying. Jesus was claiming to be the majestic God 
of whom the babes and infants would give witness. Jesus applies Psalm chapter 8 to Himself. So Jesus is in Psalm chapter 8. Let's move on in verses 3 and 4 in your handout there. It said, the humility of man pondered. Keep in mind what David's doing here, what he's looked at, what he's seen. And he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? David considers, he meditates on the heavens that belong to God. He says, those are your heavens, your fingers. Now God doesn't have fingers. We, we know He's a spirit, right? That's, this is what's called, I've got to say this real slow, anthropomorphism. You understand why it's slow. In other words, that's applying human attributes to God. God is a spirit. So in order for us to better understand Him, the Scriptures give Him human characteristics. And David is saying here, when I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers. The point is this. With just a point of a finger, if that's what God were to do, God creates billions and billions of stars and the galaxies. Here's what David's saying. It's just this simple. All God would have to do would be to point His finger and all this came into being. But actually we know what God did what? All of it came into being. He just he spoke. David looks up in the sky and he saw the moon and the stars which God had ordained. He says, you set them in place, God. You, you, you put them there. God set them in all in their appointed places. Each is right where it should be. Each and every time. In perfect obedience to the one who created it. And put it there. It's obeying God. And then in verse 4, notice David thinks of how small he is. And he marvels. What is man? That you are mindful of him. And the son of man that you would care for him. The first word used for man there, uh, the Hebrew word there, emphasizes man and his frail existence. What is man? What is this frail hunk of flesh? I, sorry, I have no other way to put it than that. What is this frail hunk of what, what, what am I? The second use man refers, he says there is the son of man. Now, most scholars who are way far smarter than I am see this as a reference to the fallen condition of man. And here's why. After all, all of us are sons of who? Adam. And we're born after his likeness and in his image in sin. Notice I said in his image in sin, not like God. But Genesis chapter 5 verse 3 says that we're sons of Adam and we bear his image because we're sinful human beings. You see what David's saying? What, who am I, this, this thing, this man, this fallen sinful man? What am I, God? What is this frail man that you are mindful of him? Mindful here means to take thought. And the son of man that you would care for him. The idea is to give attention to... Why would God even think about it? Why would He take concern about us? Compared to the vastness of the universe, what is man that God thinks of us, much less He even cares about us? At this point you're thinking, well, I don't feel so good about myself. That's probably a good way to be thinking. But there's something good coming. Just hold on. So how how do we apply this? We should be people of humility. Right? 
The next time you begin to think of yourself as something special, there's a lot of us think of ourselves as God's gift to whatever we're involved in, right? We think we're God's gift to whoever. The next time you begin to think in such a way, remember Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, meditate on that. The Word of God always brings perspective to us. You know why you should meditate? Does anybody know why you should meditate? James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Meditation upon God and His Word brings what? Humility. It brings the death of pride and arrogance. That's what God's Word does. Verses 5 through 8. On your hand out there, man's honor is established. Now, you're thinking right now, okay, I need something to help me out here. I, we're just, David's saying, who, who are we? What are we that God would even think about us? We're nothing. Verses 5 through 8, David is looking back here. He's looking back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. He's referring back in particular to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where God created man in His image and likeness. And what did He do there? He assigned man the task of what? Ruling over His creation. God's Word says that we're set apart. Listen to me. We're set apart from the animal world. Darwin. We're not animals. We're set apart from that part of God's creation. In other words, the Bible gives us proper perspective on who we are. Notice in verse 5 there, it says we're crowned with what? Glory... And honor. Yet. You see that word, yet? It points us back to verse 4. When David says, who are we? You're mindful of us. And yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now let me ask you a question. The last time we saw these words, heavenly beings, where did we see them at? Psalm, Psalm 29, and they refer to what? Angels. Those words, heavenly beings. So you're looking at this and you're going, okay, Psalm 29, angels, angels. We were made a little lower than the angels. Not so fast. Here in Psalm 8, the words heavenly beings in the Hebrew is the word Elohim, which is the plural name for God. The wheels ought to be turning right now. Heavenly beings, Elohim, it's the plural name for God. And for that reason, it's not referring to angels. The heavenly beings here is referring to the Trinity. Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image. Heavenly beings here is Elohim, it's the plural name for God. David could have said that we were made just a little higher than the other animals, but instead he says that we're made a little lower than who? God Himself. To reflect the wonder that we are when we're created in His image. We're described, listen, we're described as a little lower than God. Not a little higher than the animal world. Evolution might say we're slightly above the animals, but God says we're just a little lower than Him, right? Being in the image of God means we are like Him and we represent Him. Now, we just went from what? The scum of the earth to being what? Creating the image of God. 
We're like God. We represent God. Now listen, you're not God, okay? You like, you're like God in the fact that you have attributes that are like God and He's given them to you and you represent Him. You're not God. You're just like Him and you represent Him. Danny Aiken says it this way, As His vice regents and delegated authority on earth, we are crowned with glory and honor. This should impact our sense of what it means to be a human being. This should impact who and what we aspire to be. You're creating the image of God. You're just a little lower than He is. That should tell you something about yourself. And what you aspire to be and what it means to be human. Another commentator said this, The result, made in God's image, is that they, be, they become increasingly like God rather than increasingly animal-like in their behavior. That kind of shoots Darwin down, doesn't it? But here's the sad thing, he says. Although man is in God's image and ordained to become increasingly like God to whom they look, men and women have turned their backs on God. And since they will not look upward to God, which is their privilege and duty, they actually look downward to the beast and so become increasingly like them. We were created in the image of God to like, be like Him and represent Him. But as simple human beings, we, we lower ourselves to almost being like what? Animals. Created in the image of God. We were created to represent God and be like Him. What are some ways that we've done this? Let me quote John Piper here. He says, Lose sight of who man really is and you lose sight of who God really is in all His majesty. And lose sight of God and His majesty and the world goes berserk. Amen? Listen to what he says. Let me give you some bullet points. You cannot worship and glorify the majesty of God while treating His supreme creation with contempt, whatever color or whatever age that creation might be. You discriminate and you fail to worship and glorify God. Second, he says, you cannot starve the aged human and glorify the majesty of God. You cannot dismember unborn humans and glorify the majesty of God. You kill babies and you fail to worship and glorify God. You cannot gas the Jewish human and glorify the majesty of God. You cannot lynch the black human and glorify the majesty of God. You cannot treat human pregnancy like a disease and glorify the majesty of God. And he repeats himself. You cannot treat the mixing of human races like a pestilence and glorify the majesty of God. And then once again, he repeats himself. You cannot worship and glorify the majesty of God while treating His supreme creation with contempt. We can't treat one another the way we treat one another and give glory to God because all human beings are what? Created in the image of God. What's the old song as kids we used to sing? Red, yellow. Black and white. They are precious in His sight. Why are they precious in His sight? Because He created them all in His image. Regardless of who they are, what color their skin is, what socioeconomic background they come from, all human beings are created in the image of God. In verses 6-8, through we're made rulers. You've given Him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. David here is stressing uh, that functional aspect of being created in the image of God. He observes that we have been fashioned by God to be what? An authority over His creation. 
Verse 6 says, we're made to have dominion. We're made to be rulers over the works of your hands. I don't know about you, that, that makes me stop and pause. What was David saying about God? His creation was so majestic, and yet God gives us dominion to do what? To rule over that creation? It says He has put all things under our feet. The idea is to have superiority over something. Thus, verses 7 and 8, all sheep. Ox, beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea, all that pass through the pass of the sea. All of this God has put under our feet, under our authority. Now here's the question I have for you. Is that true right now? Is that true? Think about it. If you go back to Genesis, before chapter 3, before the fall, you see a pre-falling perfect world. It's there that we see Psalm chapter 8 taking place. In our world today, this is certainly not the way things are before the fall. Right now, we do not live in a Psalm 8 world. We don't live there. In other words, verses 6 and 8 take us back to the Garden of Eden. That's where they're pointing us back to. But they should also cause us to ask this important question. Can it be reversed? Can something happen to reverse this? And right now you should be thinking something. Can death be defeated? Can killing babies be defeated? Can racism and discrimination be defeated? Will pain and suffering be no more? Will there ever be a time again when all things are once again under the feet of the authority of man? Or of any man? Right now you should be asking... What's God going to do to take care of this? It's not what God's going to do, it's what God has done. God sent His Son, the Son of Man, to provide the sacrifice for sins and to fulfill Psalm chapter 8. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 8. You and I can't fulfill it. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, it should be in your your handout there, not the, the text, but the reference. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, this is a very important passage. It cites... Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. And then who, who do you think the author applies that to? Anybody want to guess? Jesus. Listen to what he says. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death For everyone. So what is Psalm 8 telling us? It's telling us to worship the Lord because although we are weak and insignificant, God has graciously thought of us and He has cared for us. Although because of the fall, because of sin, God's image in man has been distorted. God created us in His image, right? We acknowledge that's what His Word says. But when sin came, what happened to that image? It was marred. It was distorted. Because we act and represent God, how? Not good. Right? Although because of the fall, because of sin, God's image has been distorted. But God has done something to restore that image. And what did He do? He sent Jesus, the perfect image bearer of God, to live a perfect life in our place and to die in our place. In Jesus, listen to me carefully. In Jesus, we are again 
crowned with glory and majesty. Through Jesus, those who are saved, listen to me, if you're sitting here today and you've trusted in Christ, guess what's happening to you through Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection? The image of God is being restored in you. As you live. It's been restored, but it's in the process of being restored. How do we know that? Romans chapter 8, verse 29 tells us that those who are saved, that they are being conformed to the image of who, church? Jesus. Sitting in this pew today, if you've trusted in Christ, God by His glorious power and the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, has redeemed you and He's restoring that distorted image in you through the work of Christ. Listen to me. One day, there is coming a day when you will be completely, perfectly restored to the image bearer of God. And it's all because of what Christ has done. The perfect image bearer died so you and I could be redeemed and restored to that image bearer of God. Verse 9. The majesty of God repeated. All I've just said, think of that. And then what does David say next? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David calls us to worship the Lord because His name is majestic in all the earth. Because God has done what was needed to redeem us and restore us to His image. David kind of comes full circle here and he closes this psalm. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. How do we make application? How, how, do, how do we respond to Psalm chapter 8? If you flip it over on the back of your handout... There's five ways there. By no means are they exhaustive. Let me go through these quickly. I've given them to you because I'll do that. And then you can look at them later and ponder those and meditate on those. First, we should bow in awe before our majestic Creator. This psalm should humble us and cause us to marvel at God's grace and loving us and sending His Son to save us. Remember David's words? What is man? that you are even mindful of us. And God says, I'm mindful of you, David, because you're an image bearer, and that image needs to be restored, so I'm going to send my son to die for you, to redeem you. Number two, we should treat each person with value and respect as beings created in God's image. Christians must oppose racism. We must treat all people with respect. Number three, we should stand firmly against the horrors of abortion, which treats God's majestic creation as garbage to be thrown out. I think you have D-E there instead of B. I apologize for the error. From the point of conception, biblically, the only difference between the baby in the mother's womb and you and I is time and nurture. That's the only difference. To kill children simply because it's inconvenient to care for them is a horrible sin that you and I must stand against. And let me say this. There may be someone here, personally, or you may have a family member that has committed this horrible sin of abortion. Let me tell you something. There is forgiveness for those who do such. We find out someone who has committed this sin, our first thought should be, they need forgiveness. And we should present them to Jesus. Number four. 
We should stand firmly against the charade of evolution, which denies that we are created in God's image. Evolution is simply a way for sinful people to attempt to avoid God. That's all it is. It's one of the greatest scientific frauds that's ever been imposed on the human race. It's a fraud. It's a theory. Number five. I may hang out here for a while. We should rear our children to love, fear, and serve God is the only way to make life significant. We should rear our children to love, fear, and serve God is the only way to make life significant. And by that I mean when we are rightly related to God through Jesus, our life takes on an eternal significance. And here's what I want to say to parents. Stop teaching your children to find significance in the temporal things of this life. Can I tell you, as a 54-year-old man, and some of you older than me, you can stand and testify, those things will leave you wanting. This world will suck the life out of you and just leave you there. But can I tell you, Jesus will never do that. You may not have everything you want, but you'll have contentment and peace in your soul because you know Christ is Lord and Savior. Parents, teach your children that life is only significant as a follower of Christ. And point them to Jesus with all the might you have. The greatest thing you'll ever do for your child is teach them about Jesus. Nothing else you put them in. And those things are good, they're fine. Nothing wrong with them. But when those things take priority over you pointing your child to Christ. Listen, I hear people tell me, I don't have time to sit down with my kids and read the Bible and pray and teach them. Well listen, we find time to do everything else. Right? My daddy always told me, we find time to do what we want to do, right? The greatest thing you'll ever do as a parent is point your children to Jesus. Anything else you do with them is fine. But when those things take priority over you pointing your children to Christ, you need to re-examine your priorities in life. Your children need to be pointed to Christ. And I'll leave that alone. I think I've given enough to that. So let's pray.